Alrighty folks, welcome to episode 4 of The Archives Are Incomplete. My name is Jonah, and today we'll be talking about The Old Republic Deceived by Paul S. Kemp. This book is set roughly 300 years after our last book, Revan, and is of course still in the era of The Old Republic, and very closely related with The Old Republic MMO. In fact, there's a cinematic for SWOTOR called Deceived, which I highly recommend checking out, that covers one of the scenes in this book. The other intro cinematics for The Old Republic, Return and Hope, are also somewhat tangentially related to this, particularly Hope, the battle for Alderaan, which is mentioned a few times in the story. In any case, let's read the back of the book, shall we? A Sith warrior to rival the most sinister of the Order's Dark Lords, Darth Malgus brought down the Jedi Temple on Coruscant in a brutal assault that shocked the galaxy. But if war crowned him the darkest of Sith heroes, peace will transform him into something far more heinous, something Malgus would never want to be, but cannot stop becoming, any more than he can stop the rogue Jedi fast approaching. Her name is Aaron Lanier, and the lone Jedi Knight that Malgus cut down in the fierce battle for the Jedi Temple was her master. Now she's going to find out what happened to him, even if it means breaking every rule in the book. It's interesting, this back of the book gives us a little bit of the plot, the destruction of the Jedi Temple, but it doesn't, he's not really crowned the darkest of Sith heroes, and peace isn't going to really transform him at all. It, it just makes him feel uncomfortable because it doesn't give him something to strive for or fight against. Also, quote-unquote, the lone Jedi Knight that Malgus cut down. Malgus killed, like, a dozen Jedi, easily, in that battle. Like, yeah, he had a one-on-one -on -one duel with one guy, but it, I don't really like that phrasing. In any case, we're going to dive into things. We're going to, of course, talk about the plot. We're going to talk a little bit about the state of the galaxy at this point, 300 years after Revan. And then we're going to talk about the three main point-of-view characters, Darth Malgus, Aaron Lanier, and a smuggler named Zirid. And we're going to talk a little bit about their philosophies, what they did, why they did it, and that sort of thing. Now, should you read this book? Eh. It's definitely skippable. It's mostly standalone. There's some fine plots, some cool moments. It's fun to see the cinematic deceived played out, written out, and then all the consequences of it. The book is pretty great context for Star Wars The Old Republic, so if you do want to play that game, which again, really fun, reading deceived gives you a little bit more story to set you up for that adventure. Right, so the galaxy. We're going to start here because we've missed some steps. The Sith Empire that we mentioned in Revan 300 years ago has come onto the stage in full force. They've reconquered Korriban, they've attacked Alderaan and been beaten off of it. Uh, you can see that in The Old Republic Return and The Old Republic Hope, which are both three to five minute long cinematics available wherever you find your videos. The defense of Alderaan is mentioned a few times, and in both Return, Hope, and deceived, the bald Sith is Darth Malgus, who we'll be getting a lot of in this book. At the start of this story, the Sith and the Jedi have organized negotiations for peace. This is mostly a Jedi-Sith thing, not a Empire-Republic thing, although the Sith are intrinsically entwined in the Imperial power structure, they are the leadership, whereas in the Republic, the Senators are somewhat distinct from Jedi. There's not a lot of crossover between individuals from the Temple and individuals from the Senate. In fact, these negotiations include Master Darnala, Jedi Knights Tilsh Chan, Aaron Lanier, of course, and several other Jedi Knights, and only one Senator. So it is very much a Jedi-heavy negotiating party. So that's where we start. 
The story then really begins with Darth Malchus attacking the Jedi Temple with Alina, his Twi'lek slave-slash-lover, and an unnamed Mandalorian bounty hunter. He's accompanied by a bunch of Sith, including one Darth Adras, and they are under the command of Darth Angrel, who's been given orders by the Emperor. It's interesting to note that since the time of Revan, the Mandalorians have become more firmly aligned with the Empire. There are a couple places where you see a Mandalorian marching alongside the Sith, and while that isn't indicative of the whole culture, they haven't been told to align themselves with the Republic either. Malgus kills many Jedi, and the temple is destroyed, Coruscant is captured and bombed. Then we have the Jedi Knight Aaron Lanier, who previously mentioned is at the negotiations on Alderaan. She feels the death of her master, Jedi Master Zalo, and almost attacks the Sith who are sitting outside of the negotiations room with her. She sneaks off of Alderaan to find out who killed her master, and find a pilot she knows who she hopes can get her onto Coruscant to find the security readings. Pretty much like the ones that Anakin used, or the ones that Obi-Wan and Yoda used to see Anakin killing the younglings. Our third starting branch is ex-Republic pilot Zirid Kor. He's doing a drop for the exchange, which is a criminal cartel. He's doing this for his daughter. She has lost her legs, and he wants to be able to at least get her a hover chair, if not prosthetics, give her a good life. He's told that if he does just one more job, going to Coruscant through the Sith blockade, his debt will be wiped clear, and he'll be given a sizable amount of cash. He accepts this offer and heads to Volta, where he uses some of the money up front to get a hover chair for his daughter. And he is tracked by Vrath Shizor, who works for a rival syndicate, in this case the Huts. Vrath discovers Ara, Zirid's daughter, but Aaron, the Jedi, finds Zirid, her old ally, and the two of them make it to his ship and escape Vrath. Vrath is tasked with destroying the shipment Zirid is making, and so he focuses on Zirid and Aaron. Aaron accepts that Zirid is smuggling, as what he is doing does work out for her, at least for now. By this point, Malgus has gotten into a fight with the Sith Angral and Adras, and has been put on guard dog duty. He's part of the Sith blockade. It's low in honor and respect, and something not particularly well suited to him, but it's where he is, and so he goes there because he can't make a fuss about it without getting killed or demoted or have all sorts of bad things happen to him, because that's the way the Sith work. Vrath heads to Coruscant ahead of Aaron and Zirid, because he knows that's where Zirid is going with his shipment, and is brought in front of Malgus. Vrath, being an ex-Imperial sniper, knows kind of what's going on, and is able to report in a way such that Malgus listens to him and begins inspections for anybody who might be trying to sneak in. Aaron and Zirid in the ship, the Fat Man, appear. They get tractored, break free of the tractor beam, and then flee, getting shot down in the atmosphere of Coruscant. Now, here's a little bit of fun little tech stuff, some tech specs, if you would. To get into Coruscant, Zirid wants to clamp his ship to a giant Imperial convoy ship, and to do so, he refactors his deflector shield, which is an electromagnetic projector, to attach like a limpet onto the convoy ship, sort of like an electromagnetic, electromagnetic attractor. And that's not really something we see anywhere else, but it makes a degree of sense. It's controlling the electromagnetic magnetic field, just in a different way than it normally is. Zirid also breaks free from the Valor, which is Malgus's cruiser, by waiting for the tractor beam to pull them almost all the way in, and then just jamming on the gas, more or less. This is something that we see in a couple places, as it is a technique that can work against tractor beams, although it is very high risk. Finally, as the ship is starting to fall apart in atmosphere, Aaron and Zirid can't make it to an escape pod, 
so she just cuts a hole in the wall of the ship and jumps out from 50 kilometers up and uses the force to make a safe landing. This isn't really mentioned, but um, 50 kilometers at human velocity, if you're like aiming straight down, that's going to take like 10 minutes of falling. And surprise, surprise, the book makes it happen in a few seconds, but, you know, we can pretend that maybe it was 5 kilometers up, and so only like a minute of falling. Anyways, that's not really what we need to be talking about here. It is a pretty cool feat, and it shows that a Jedi can fall from pretty much any height if they're strong enough, and can deflect that plow or slow themselves down with the force so that they can land pretty safely. From landing on Coruscant, Aaron and Zirid go to the Jedi Temple, or the ruins of the Jedi Temple, and they find Master Zalo's droid. Aaron is pretty much just like me from a decade ago, and she watches the battle of the Jedi Temple over and over. I was watching Deceived over and over again. It is actually a really good cinematic, and I highly recommend it. I think it's my favorite of the three. In any case, they leave the temple, and Eren now super, super, super wants to go up to the Valor to fight Magus. Zirid just wants to go home. The Exchange thinks he's dead. He has some savings, so he can quit this rough life and give something to his daughter. He goes off to scout the spaceport, now controlled by the Imperials, for a way off for him and a way up for Eren. And she, after a short meditation, returns to the temple to find Malgus. She does find him, and they start a fight. Zirid approaches, finds her, and pretty much yanks her away and demands that she come with him because she promised that she would help him off the planet. As they're flying away, he mentions Alina was at the spaceport, and Eren recognizes her from the recordings. So she now wants to make Malgus feel pain and wants to hurt Alina. They go to the spaceport. Eren threatens Alina, and Alina is just accepting of her fate. She recognizes the pain in Eren, and she recognizes that it's the same as the pain in Malgus. And she talks to Eren about this pain, these feelings. Eren chooses not to kill Alina, but does use her as leverage to make sure that Z gets out. She threatens Malgus with killing Alina unless he lets Zirid's ship go through the blockade. The two of them fight, and while Malgus wins, he does choose to let her go. She's unconscious and at his mercy, and rather than finishing her off, he goes over to Alina and waits for Eren to wake up and tells Eren, you go now, you've shown me a weakness that I did not know I have. Magus then kills Alina himself to purge himself of that weakness, and that's where his story ends. On the ship that Zirid boarded, that happened to be Vrath's ship, the opposing criminal agent. They fight, Zirid wins, and while Vrath is defeated and unarmed, he makes mention of Zirid's daughter. And at that point, Zirid decides that Vrath needs to go, and so in cold blood, he takes Vrath, injured and defeated, shoves him into an airlock, and then drops him into the void of space. After that, he goes off to Dantooine, brings his daughter with him there, buys a farm, becomes a farmer, and leaves the life of crime behind him. Eventually, Aaron finds him, and it's happily ever after. Now let's talk a little bit about the philosophy of each of these characters. We've talked a lot about Sith philosophy over the past few books, because, I mean, they have been the major characters in a lot of what we have, and they're going to be major characters in a bunch of what we have going forward for the next few books, so I hope you're not getting bored of this. I promise you, within a month or two, we'll be out of this Old Republic era, and the Sith will have been defeated and forgotten, and so a lot of what we're going to be talking about is the philosophy of the Jedi and the Republic instead. Malgus's philosophy is that the Force is 
pretty much the survival of the fittest. Challenge breeds strength. To quote him, conflict drives a more perfect understanding of the force. The empire expands and creates conflict. In that regard, the empire is an instrument of the force. He believes that you understand the force through challenge, through combat. And so he's always pushing himself into situations where he is uncertain of his victory because it forces him to understand the Force better. He discovers pretty quickly after taking Coruscant, or at least taking the Jedi Temple, that it was taken by Angrel and ordered by the Emperor as a lever in the negotiations for peace, which absolutely enrages him. Peace doesn't bring tests of strength. When peace is achieved at the end of the book, negotiations are complete. He is very mad at Darth Angrel, Darth Adras, and the Emperor. He needs an enemy. He sees that the Sith need an enemy to focus their powers on. This is something that both Corson and Varner Hiltz, great lords of the Sith on cash from Lost Tribe of the Sith, also recognized or also believed. To quote Malgus again, Peace was a mistake. Peace would cause the Empire to drift into decadence, as had the Republic. Peace would cause the Sith to become weak in their understanding of the Force, as had the Jedi. The sacking of Coruscant was evidence of that decadence, that weakness. No, peace was atrophy. Only through conflict could potential be realized. When Malgus goes up to speak with Darth Adras and Darth Angrel after the conquest of Coruscant, they're playing word games. They're being diplomatic and maneuvering around each other. They say that passion is a source of weakness. That and peace, all of that is playing the Jedi's game. It's following their philosophy, saying, oh, they've conquered the galaxy or they rule the galaxy. We must meet them on their battlefield. And that's not what the Sith are about. The Sith are about finding where your opponent is weakest and you are strongest and attacking them. Doing what exactly Malgus did, taking out the temple like that. And it's fascinating to see so many Sith following the philosophies of the Jedi in an attempt to defeat them. It's more so interesting because this is something Aaron pointed out at the beginning. These Sith never fell to the dark side. They were raised in the dark side. And so the dark philosophy, the Sith philosophy, is all that they ever were taught. And so I suppose it makes some sense that there are some more passionless and politically oriented Sith Lords out there. And it's not surprising to see them do things that will undermine total victory for the Emperor. Now, Malgus isn't a perfect Sith. He has some strange ideas. His ship is named Valor. What is that to a Sith? That's a strange name for a ship for a Sith. Valor means courage in the face of danger. It feels off. It's not driven by passion, but rather than... But it has rather more protective connotations. Address and Angrel mock passion, which is what gives the Sith power, as previously mentioned. And maybe... That echo of Jedi philosophy is what they led to naming the ship Valor. Just another partial undermining of the bedrock of Sith philosophy. The other big thing about Malgus is that we're supposed to care about the relation between him and Alina. We can see that she loves him, and he has more passion and feeling for her than anyone else. But it's very uneven in power dynamic, and it's very, very abusive. She wants to settle down and have a life together, but lets him dictate where they go. He has all of the power in the relationship. He's from, they're both from, a racist society. He's force-sensitive. He literally owns her. He can't admit to anybody in his culture that he has feelings for her, that he likes her, that he approves of her, because it would be seen as a weakness. He will be not only mocked, but she will be hurt to hurt him. It's difficult to see that he has positive, healthy feelings towards her, if he does at all. We're told that he loves her, but we're not really shown it. He does rush 
to her bedside when she's injured, and he gives her privileges that no non-Sith should receive, and trusts her in combat, but it doesn't feel like a strong, believable relationship like we get with Zirid and his daughter Ara. At the end of the book, when Malgus lets Aaron go and says it's because she showed him something he hadn't seen before, I think we're supposed to expect he loves Alina and needs to leave the Empire and just be with her. And what we get is, Alina is my weakness. And so he kills her to remove the weakness. He's angry at those who would have hurt her to hurt him and gains strength from that, ignoring that he is the one who, you know, actually killed her, but it allows him to have her remain an ideal for him, rather than an actual person. Finally, at the very end, in the epilogue, when he finds Darth Adras in his mansion, I just really like the line of Adras saying, weren't you in the unknown regions? And Malgus replying, I am in the unknown regions. It reminds me very much of the, yes, where is Devor line from Lost Tribe of the Sith. They're both very good alibis. They are someplace else, or the person that they killed was not supposed to be where they were. That final scene with Adras and Malgus is a reiteration of politics is a failure of understanding Sith philosophy. There are ways in which negotiations or diplomacy can theoretically be executed in line with Sith philosophy. As an example, taking over destroying Coruscant to gain an upper hand in the negotiations on Alderaan does connect a little bit with Sith philosophy. However, there isn't really enough follow-through. The Republic gets back Coruscant, and the Empire gets a few Outer Rim planets. If the peace is just to hide a buildup of military might so that they can go on the offensive again, or if there's a particular resource on one of the planets that they're given that will give them an edge in battle, these make more sense. But I'm not really sold on trading Coruscant for Outer Rim planets as a good thing for the Empire, and clearly neither is Darth Malgus. Next up, we have Eren. Eren is a relatively complicated Jedi. While she is a full Jedi Knight, there are many, many slips, emotionally speaking. Before we dive into that, though, I want to talk a little bit about her observation at the beginning of the book. During the negotiation, she notes that the Sith there were raised in the dark side, as I mentioned earlier, and they didn't fall to it. She wonders how she would have fared in their place. And I'm kind of disappointed we didn't revisit this explicitly. While we do see her flirting with the dark side throughout the book, making decisions based on pragmatism rather than idealism, we do see her turn from the dark side, turn away from it at the end of the book. But I wish she had the opportunity to reevaluate herself and compare herself to the Sith that she faced directly. She never holds herself up against Malgus or any of the Dark Jedi that she sees or knows of. And I think that would have been a really neat introspective moment for her to be able to say, I was there, I tasted the temptation, and chose to not go forward with it. There were, of course, many moments where she was closer to the dark side than not. When Zalo dies, she slips. She sees herself slipping towards the dark side and doesn't care. Some distant part of her recognized her emotional slippage. She did not care. The pain was too deep, too fierce. And later, she says, losing something she loved had ripped her open in a way she had not expected. The pain hurt but the pain was right. Zalo was like a father figure to her. He loved her and she loved him, and they were very close emotionally. And she believes that non-attachment is dumb. She believes that having a reason to fight, having somebody you care for, gives her some strength. These ideas harken back to Revan and his ideas on attachment, that it can be used for good. However, the way she responds to this attachment, by wanting vengeance and labeling it justice, does tend towards the dark side. Furthermore, while she does have some ethics, she, she feels uncomfortable when Zerid seems to be stealing an airspeeder, 
and she doesn't want to lie to Alina and say, I won't hurt you, she's still ready and willing to hurt and kill Alina in that moment, and she's ready to use Alina as a hostage to get what she wants from Malgus. She takes the attitude of sacrifice perhaps in the wrong direction. Sayo Bakarn, another Jedi Knight on Alderaan, says, All Jedi must sacrifice. Sometimes we sacrifice the emotional bonds that usually link people one to another. Sometimes we sacrifice more. And what he's trying to say is that Jedi sacrifice attachment and that Master Zalo sacrificed his life for the good of the Jedi Order. And Eren does sacrifice here and there. She sacrifices a degree of secrecy to pay the taxi driver on the way to the spaceport. She's willing to sacrifice her own righteousness to get vengeance, but also at the same time recognizes that she can't bring others with her. She can't bring Volin and his Padawan Kivo, another Jedi Knight. She even says, tell Darnala, I'm sorry, Master Darnala, being the Jedi Master in charge of negotiations on Alderaan, and letting Darnala know that more or less leads the Jedi to the point where they tell the Empire, Aaron Lanier is expendable in the name of peace. And most of the time she's sacrificing something of her own, which is something a Jedi is allowed to do. In some cases she sacrifices or wants to sacrifice for somebody else. She wants to sacrifice Zirid's opportunity to go see his daughter again, and when is reminded that she made a promise to him, she recognizes that she has to sacrifice her own desire for vengeance, so as to not sacrifice her promise to Zirid and his opportunities. So she does mostly stay true to the theme of sacrifice yourself and not for others, or of others, but she may sacrifice too much of her own goodness to really remain a true Jedi. Of course, she does eventually leave the Jedi Order, in part because her beliefs are challenged and she is faced with the dark side and feels like the light side is not enough either. What redeems her is her moment with Alina. Alina recognized her pain and validated it and said, yes, those are feelings that you are allowed to have. You need to experience those. And being understood, being listened to, tempered her feelings. When she told her feelings to Sayo, he said, don't be angry, and that only made her angrier. Expressing her feelings to Zirid, he said, don't lose yourself, and that made her angrier. Being told, I understand why you want to kill me, the pain you want to cause him is what you feel, made her feel understood, it made her feel heard, it made her see what she's doing, it gave her perspective, and that's very important. Actually listening to and respecting somebody's feelings are very clearly key. And ignoring your feelings, either suppressing them or denying them like the Jedi want you to do, is not a path to good mental health. Apparently, an Imperial slave-slash-assassin-slash-warrior is the one with the best mental health in the whole lot, or best mental health awareness. I guess it makes sense that somebody who is a slave to a person who is a slave to their passions, to a Sith Lord, knows how to calm somebody down. In any case, I think Eren did have an interesting storyline, but I would have liked to see her own conclusions on the dark side and where she lands. While we do see her leaving the Jedi Order, that isn't necessarily because she believes that she was somewhat justified in her actions, it's just that she feels like she is no longer part of the Order, because she was definitely kicked out. Finally, we come to Zirid. It's interesting, there's apparently no galactic or universal healthcare. Zirid was part of the Republic Army when his daughter was injured, and he has to pay out of pocket for anything more than an archaic wheelchair. Other options include hover chairs, prosthetics, and in the Sith realms, regrowth, which seems like it might be Sith alchemy, like Lannery Brock practice in Dawn of the Jedi and some other Sith practice elsewhere. But it's surprising that the Republic would not help one of its troopers 
because when they are unable to help his daughter, when they don't help his daughter, he leaves the Republic and becomes a pilot for criminals because that's where he can get the money to pay for this expensive surgery. Zeerd is generally given a pretty straightforward, if rough story. It's, my daughter's injured, I'm doing this for my daughter, I will do anything for her. But the description of Yinta Lake on Volta added a nice depth to the world, and seeing Zirid with Ara is very humanizing. I care about his struggles because I can see his relationships. I can see him wanting to do his best and seeing where he fails and seeing him recognize that in himself, seeing him wrestle with problems. His goals, his motivations are the least selfish of the motivations of all three characters, and for me, that's the most relatable. Later on, he tells Aaron that he's worried that it will cost her her soul. Not necessarily fall to the dark side, but there is some moral judgment in what he believes will happen if Aaron gets her hands on Alina. And again, it shows that he is invested in the well-being of others, whereas Aaron mostly uses him as a tool, and Malgus doesn't seem to really care for anyone other than Alina, and still he uses her as a tool most of the time. Towards the end of the book, when Zerid kills Wrath, he has him at his mercy, and I really, really appreciated the way he says, you talk too much, to Wrath. It's just, I was going to let you go, and if you hadn't threatened me or thought about threatening me, if you just hadn't crossed that line, you would have been able to walk away from this. I would have been able to walk away with, without the burden of cold-blooded murder on my shoulders. I recognize I am the one making this choice and I feel like I have to, but I'm not absolving you of your involvement in this. Both Aaron and Malgus end the story feeling like they have no burdens. Malgus has killed his foes, he's killed his weakness, Aaron has turned her back on vengeance, but Zirid carries the death of Wrath, and he's the only one who has consequences for his actions, long-term consequences. I mean, Aaron left the Jedi Order, which is very significant, but we don't talk about that. We don't see how important it is to her. In the moment, she doesn't feel like she's been betrayed. There's not some massive shock. She's just like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Actually, in fact, I don't think she ever actually finds out explicitly during the book. It's not something that's covered. And if it is, it's not covered to the point where I remember it. And so, again, there are no consequences for Aaron and Malgus, which makes their stories have less weight, at least for me. I also want to talk very briefly about Wrath Shizor. He's definitely not a major point of view character, but he does have a chapter or two to himself. He works for the Hut cartels against the Exchange, and is an ex-Imperial sniper who was discharged from Imperial service, and was frequently in the brig for insubordination. I'm curious, what does a sniper have to do to get ejected from the Imperial army, but not executed in Sith service? Insubordination, to a certain degree, would lead to execution. How did he get away with a discharge rather than you know, a blaster bolt being discharged into his head. It's not addressed, but it's just something that I'm curious about. I think it's supposed to say, he's so hard that even the Empire didn't want him. But if he was that hard, the Empire would have just killed him. There's also possibly a connection between his name and Prince Shizor of the Black Sun Syndicate many millennia later. Maybe, given that Prince Shizor is Faleen and Vrath Shizor is human, maybe Vrath Shizor is working for a clan or family under the name of Shizor. Who knows? Wrapping it up, there are a couple more miscellaneous notes. We get our first mention of Kath, that ubiquitous stimulant that's definitely not caffeine. Malgus, actually, is the one who notes it uh, when entering the Supreme Chancellor's office. Also, at one point, Aaron and Zirid go into the works, which is the underbelly infrastructure of Coruscant. It's the network of pipes and wires that move water and waste, electricity, 
there still needs to be some degree of physical infrastructure even this far in the future. Of course, speaking of this far in the future, Zerid wishes to hollow recorder because it's so impressive, but he doesn't have a hollow recorder on him. We modern people have cameras on our phones, it's pretty common technology, and yet it doesn't exist in Star Wars. They don't have hollow recorders on their data pads, at least not commonly. Our final note, as it will be relevant for story going forward, the Sith surrendered Coruscant and retreated from it, and the Jedi also left. I believe they relocated to Tython, although it's not mentioned in this book. In any case, if you like this, definitely check out the MMO Star Wars The Old Republic, as well as the two other books in the Old Republic grouping, Fatal Alliance and Annihilation. Of course, before we get to that, we'll be back next week with Red Harvest. If you like this episode and want to hear more of my ramblings, please be sure to check that box to like, subscribe, favorite, or whatever it is your app calls it, and check back in next week. You can contact me on Twitter at Jedi underscore Archive, or email me at podcast at fatelfgames.com. I'm Jonah, and the archives are incomplete.